Now, many Catholics, modern Catholics, they think purgatory is just like, oh, you're, it's just character change. It happens in an instant. And they try to like kind of water down purgatory. But when you go to the official teachings of the Catholic Church, purgatory has a different function. Purgatory is there for you to pay for the punishment of your sins. That freaks me out as a Christian. Yes. Okay. Now this group is different than every group we've talked about so far in some pretty significant ways. We're going to talk about Roman Catholicism. And while I would say groups one through four, we could identify as probably a, a cult. We would say those were cult groups. Roman Catholicism, I wouldn't put that label on it. But um, And when we say cult, we don't mean the um, Oxford Studies of Religion definition of cult, which is like any group with religious rituals is considered a cult in that definition. In Christian theology, that's and that is a legitimate discipline, scholarly discipline. In Christian theology, the term more to, you know, denotes someone claiming they're Christian, but they're diverting from Christianity on these essential truths. So when I talk about Roman Catholicism, I got to start, and I have lots of hours on it, but I, I got to start by saying how much we agree on. Um, let's start with Jesus. Roman Catholic teaching is identical. I mean, it's, it's right. It's correct on the person of Christ. It's identical to what I would believe, right? That Jesus is the son of God, second person of the Trinity. He's God incarnate. He died on the cross for your sin. Although in some Roman Catholic stuff, that's a little fuzzy on the details there, but he died on the cross for your sin. He rose bodily from the dead and he's coming to judge all people. We would agree with Roman Catholics with the very first creeds of the early church. Like these are the guys that came out of persecution, wouldn't give up their faith, and then they, you know, have the first earliest creeds of the church. And we would agree on all that. Some of the disagreement coming. Now, I don't want to discount that agreement. So if you said, is, is Roman Catholic Christian? Well, in a sense, yes, it is. Like, it holds to the person of Christ and following Christ and all that. But where it gets complicated and difficult is when we start talking about how salvation works in Roman Catholicism. So according to, the, and, and you can actually get to the nitty gritty of this because there's a lot of official teaching on the topic of salvation. Let me give you some summaries that I'm going to admit many Roman Catholic apologists are not going to like my summaries, but that's because they sound bad. Okay. Not because they're not true. Like I'm going to explain why I believe these things are actually accurate. So they would say Jesus is necessary for salvation, but he's not sufficient. Grace is needed for salvation, but grace is not enough for salvation. Your works help earn your salvation. Now, once I say that, things get real complicated if you're talking to an informed Catholic, because they're going to tell you, oh, I, I've heard seen this many times, right? Especially the current Catholic apologists who tend to say, are you kidding? We believe a person could just put their faith in Jesus, right? And then, and, and they've done no good works and they die and then they go to heaven. And we believe that. And you're like, wait, what? But, but Mike told me that you guys thought works were needed. Well, here's why it's complicated, because they separate salvation into two different stages. Stage one salvation, they call initial justification. Stage two salvation, final justification, or, or you know, you're, you've, you've actually get to heaven later on. And that difference is important for us to understand. So stage one, initial salvation, it's said to be by faith alone and not with any works that you perform. It does require baptism. Baptism is required on Catholic teaching, but they'll say that's not a work and then it's just you're saved by faith alone. And, and baptism usually applies to new babies or, or little little babies, right? Or new converts to Catholicism. But if you've been a Catholic for longer than, you know, a few months or a few years or something, if you were an, an infant and you were baptized, once you get old enough to be an adult, you're on stage two salvation. You are not on 
I'm saved by believing and getting baptized, which I don't think baptism is required for salvation, but that is the teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, stage two salvation is where the problems show up. So let me talk about stage two. This is where, and I'm going to quote official Roman Catholic sources so people know I'm not trying to misrepresent it. I think this is very important stuff. And the Roman Catholic Church historically thought this was important. They said that people who don't agree with them on this are accursed from God. So that's kind of them making, throwing down the gauntlet on this topic. So we should know about it. Many Catholics don't know what I'm about to share with you guys. So don't approach them as though they do. But let me talk about the official teaching. Your acts of righteousness according to Roman Catholic teaching, are not just fruit of the work of God in your life, like I do good things because God's Holy Spirit is working in me. Rather, they're also something that merits or earns final salvation. In um, the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent, it says the following thing. If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit, listen to this phrase, merit an increase of grace, eternal life, and in case he dies in grace, the attainment of eternal life itself, and also an increase of glory. If you don't say all that, let him, if you do say against those things, then let him be anathema. Now I know Trent's worded weird because what they do is they say, if you say this thing we don't like, then you're anathema. In that is an affirmation. What they're saying is, you know, Alan, if you're Catholic, you know, you get baptized as an infant most likely, but you're not, you're not an infant anymore. I'm pretty sure you're a little older than that. Now you need to do good works. You're going to, and those good works will merit an increase of grace. Now this from a biblical perspective is an incoherent statement. You don't merit grace. How'd you get that grace? Well, I earned it. <laughs> what? Then, it's, then it's not grace, right? Romans eleven six is my go-to verse on this. It says that if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works or merits. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Like that's just, you know, it's like an ego Montoya shows up in Paul's writing of Romans eleven six and says, grace, you keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. You know, <laughs> I don't think it means what you think it means. So um, here's another quote from the Council of Trent. By the way, the Council of Trent, like things like, say, the Vatican II, these are these are official councils of the Catholic Church. They're ecumenical. They're binding. They're considered infallible statements. Okay, so the canons, the parts I'm reading are considered infallible statements. Here's the next one from uh, Trent 6, Canon 24. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved, that's the justice we get from God when we get saved, is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Now, if that anathema still applies, there's debate in the Catholic Church. Like some people say, well, that anathema was back then. We don't, we don't anathematize people anymore, but there's no official statement that says they don't anathematize. Like this is the official one. Catholic teaching is very complicated because there's Lots of unofficial things floating around Catholicism. I try to stick to the councils because they're the official, you know, considered infallible claims. Um, but they're saying our justification, our salvation is preserved and increased by our good works. But Galatians, the book of Galatians seems to be written against this very idea. Paul's like, hey, you started with grace. Now you're going to be perfected by your flesh. Like, no, you stand in grace. You start in grace, you stand in grace. It's your whole Christian life is sustained purely by grace, which means you're not earning it. But look at how the gospel is defined. This is in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2068. 
and I'll quote, the gospel to every creature, they're going to preach the gospel to every creature, so that all men may attain salvation. And look at how they say you get it, through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. So you actually get salvation by, I have faith, I have baptism, and we're like, oh, yes, have faith. Okay, get baptized. You should get baptized, even if I don't think that's the cause of your salvation. You should all get baptized. And you should observe the commandments, but these things aren't giving you salvation, but they are on Roman Catholicism giving you that salvation that anybody with a thinking mind who didn't get baptized five seconds ago is, is accountable to do. That's on Catholicism. It's how you stay saved. It's how you maintain, or even how you get back your salvation. Uh, one of the things they do is like, say, the Eucharist, which they, you know, you go to a church and you partake of communion. They believe it's the body and blood of Christ, literally, when the, the priest has a special power, he has the power of invocation. When he speaks special words over the cup and over the bread, they turn into the body and blood of Christ. This is considered something of a re-sacrifice or a representation of a new, like the sacrifice of Christ anew is, is right there for you. You partake of it because this week you might have done something that made you lose your salvation. And now you're getting you're getting it again. You're getting salvation again. So many Catholics would be thinking they're getting re-saved uh, as they uh, re-forgiven as they partake of communion. But even if you have good works, baptism, you try to obey the commands, but you're not perfect and you know you're not. I know I'm not. You can actually still be paying for your sins on Roman Catholic teaching even after you die. Even if you're covered by Jesus's blood. This is a sad and terrorizing thought. But that's what purgatory is. Now, many Catholics, modern Catholics, they think purgatory is just like, oh, you're, it's just character change. It happens in an instant. And they try to like kind of water down purgatory. But when you go to the official teachings of the Catholic Church, purgatory has a different function. Purgatory is there for you to pay for the punishment of your sins. That freaks me out as a Christian. I'm like, what? what? Jesus paid once and for all. Let me read to you guys. This is from the Council of Florence. This is an ecumenical council that means it it matters. <laughs> you can't run away from it on Roman Catholic teaching. So um, Council of Florence, where it says, it, it, has, um, it has likewise defined, now this, when, when a council defines something, it means that it's binding on everyone. You all have to believe this. It has likewise defined that if those truly penitent have departed in the love of God before they've made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission. Okay, so let me, for those who might get lost in the old school terminology there, for people who are Catholics, they're generally good Catholics, but they died and they haven't like done enough good works for all to cover all their sins and they haven't done enough penance and everything. So they still have some sin on them. The souls of these, I read on, the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments. And so that they may be released from punishments of this kind, the suffrages of the living faithful are an advantage to, of advantage to them, namely the sacrificed uh, sacrifices of mass, prayer and almsgiving, and other works of piety, which are customarily performed by the faithful over or for other faithful, according to the institutions of the church. Let me, I, I want to read that in full so people know I'm not, I'm not making stuff up. I always get accused of your misrepresenting Catholicism. You guys are welcome to look up these councils on your own. Look them up. Don't just listen to what random people are saying. Like, let's go to the real sources here. But what it's stating is, you're going to suffer punishment for your sins in purgatory, but to try to speed that along, people that are alive now, they can do a mass in your name and it's, and they can do good works and they can give and offer like a donation in your name and it will help cover your sins, pay for your sins so that you can get to heaven quicker because purgatory 
most Catholics traditionally have thought purgatory is a pretty horrific, unpleasant place to be. And this to me is all so sad because it takes away from the finished work of Jesus Christ because it adds your work, your filthy rags to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's so sad. There's many other things we could talk about. I'm not going to get into Marian doctrines, doctrines about Mary. We both love Mary. Well, Catholic and you know evangelicals were like, hey, Mary is great. But Roman Catholic teaching would also add that she was born without sin, without original sin, that she bodily ascended into heaven. Whether she died or not is a debate in, amongst Catholics, whether she even died physically. She is bodily ascended into heaven, and she was always a virgin, even though the Bible says that Jesus had actual real brothers and sisters. Um, and, but these are doctrines they've had, they've added so many things, the whole idea of saints and the, our interaction with saints, the priesthood that doesn't exist in the Bible, but is extremely important in Catholicism concepts like the treasury of merit or the, the, the college of bishops that they have and the Pope, all this stuff is completely foreign to scripture. So you've got to ask the question, right? Where do they get all this stuff? Like, where's all this stuff coming from? If it's not from the Bible, where is purgatory and the Pope and the bishops and the treasury of merit and the priesthood and the doctrines about Mary? Like, where is all this stuff coming from? And the answer is their authority is, is scripture-ish, okay? They reverence scripture highly, and I applaud them for that. The Pope will say, hey, guys, you need to read your Bibles. The Pope recently has said this. Now, Go back 400 years and they were telling people not to read the Bible, <laughs> but but at least now they're saying read the Bible. And I appreciate that. Um, but they've got to have these unbiblical teachings coming from somewhere. So the sources they have that are as equally authoritative as the Bible, equally, and I would argue even higher, are sacred tradition and the Pope and the bishops in agreement with him. Catch it in agreement with him, meaning any any bishop ultimately who says something in a disagreement with the Pope doesn't count. Only the Pope and the ones that agree with him count, which means the Pope counts. <laughs> That's what it all ultimately comes down to. Um, now, sacred tradition, they'll, they'll refer to as the church fathers. Catholic apologists and, and Catholics tend to have like very high estimations of the church fathers and of church history. They're going to read lots of sources. But in my experience, when I check those sources thoroughly, I find they have a highly edited version of the church fathers. And even in official things like Trent or Vatican II, Vatican I, they will say stuff about the church fathers in history that's simply not true. And it feels more like they're trying to use the authority of these dead people, which doesn't really exist. They shouldn't have real authority there as a way of justifying doctrines that came later. And they're like, well, we, we find it in the church fathers. But yeah, it's a very edited version and scattered quotes of the church fathers. Um, if you want to go down that road, you guys should read them, read the church fathers in total. And you'll see how they're being used there. But ultimately, here's here's where, what it comes down to. Um, you could go to the Bible, you could go to the church fathers, but that won't give you Catholic teaching. Roman Catholic teaching is going to come from the Pope and the ecumenical councils. That's what it's going to come from. And when they say ecumenical, they don't mean the whole church. They mean the whole Roman Catholic church that the Pope agrees with. That's It's a different thing. The Pope and the Roman Catholic magisterium or the teaching authority of the church, they're the only ones that are allowed to interpret the Bible like officially interpret the Bible. So you can't use the Bible to tell them they're wrong. If they were wrong, you wouldn't be allowed to use the Bible to overrule them. So the Bible loses that authority in your life personally. When Paul says to the Galatians, if anyone preaches a gospel different than what I preached to you, let him be accursed. That requires the Galatians to go to what Paul said, which we have in Romans and Galatians and stuff, and use it to refute anybody, including Paul. He says, even if I come, even my apostolic authority doesn't trump the message you already received. So we're as everyday Christians supposed to use the Bible to refute anybody, anybody, any authority. 
even Paul, if he came back later and got weird. But in Roman Catholicism, you can't do that. So the Pope is the real authority. You could say, well, church um, tradition and the church fathers, they're in authority. Yeah, but they're edited and chosen. You know, they, they'll, they'll quote a church father here, but they disagree with him over there. They take the majority of the church fathers on this issue of baptism. They take a minority on the issue of, say, Mary, where we don't see or say um, marriage as a sacrament. We didn't talk about the seven sacraments, but one of them is that marriage is a sacrament. In the, I think it's Vatican I, they say that this was always believed, universally known by the church fathers that the marriage was a sacrament. And that's completely untrue. Like historically, no, the church fathers didn't think that. Um, you see a couple scattered quotes hundreds of years later, and then finally you see it becoming a popular thing around like 900, 1000 AD. So in other words, it comes down to the Pope. It comes down to the Pope. Now, the question we have about the Pope is, is it biblical and is it historical? And because I lack time, I will refer to my other teaching content on the topic of Catholicism, but I will say this. If you start with just the Bible and try to form that, like, like you mentioned with, um, uh, I think it was with LDS, like start with just the New Testament, try to get your doctrines of the papacy. It's not there. You know, Peter, Jesus says like Peter on this rock. Yeah, but that still doesn't give you a whole papacy. Like you would just be like, Peter's important. Like it wouldn't give you a papacy, even if you took their interpretation. So you go to church history. Now here's where a book I'm going to recommend. If you guys want to like really go deep. Okay. This is a scholar's work, right? From Paul, um, to, to Valentinus, uh, Valentinus. And this is Christians at Rome in the first two centuries. And it's not a book about Catholicism. It's a scholar, Peter Lamp, who gets into like every nitty gritty detail we know about the early church in Rome, first two centuries. Finally, at the end of his book, he talks about the what he calls the monarch, monarchical episcopy, which is the idea of a single bishop ruling over the entire city of Rome, the church of Rome, rather, not the city governmentally, but the church. He says that that didn't happen until late in the second century, like 185. We finally have one man who's like got authority across all the different local fellowships in Rome. That was 150 years after Jesus. That's how long it was. And then, and only then, did they slowly start to flex authority over other churches. The idea that Rome has authority over the global church is not from the first century. It's it's not at all. There was no single guy. In, and I know people are going to be like, but Irenaeus and stuff. Dude, I beg you to pick up this book, read like a real scholar on the topic. You can tell he's not even trying to enter into the Protestant Catholic debates at all. He's just like a nerd about history and he's getting into the details. So it's a, it's a nice neutral source for people to check out. But yeah, I, I think um, for some ideas on how to approach Roman Catholicism, I would say um, approach Catholics individually. They're so individual. Um, unlike say uh, the Hebrew Israelites, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the LDS, they're actually going to have pretty consistent theology with their groups. Roman Catholics are not like this at all. Um, the majority of U.S. Catholics, for instance, they actually support abortion. The majority of U.S. Catholics, whereas the Catholic Church is staunchly and rightly against abortion. But it, this shows you that Catholics and Catholicism are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, they're, they're more into the the rituals are consistent with Catholics. The beliefs themselves are very inconsistent. So I, I would just want to be like, hey, maybe this person does believe the biblical gospel. I don't even know. I'm just going to ask some questions and discuss it with them. You could start with the common ground you have with Jesus in the Bible. And then you could talk about two things that I would recommend anyway. I would say talk about the gospel of grace. Go to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, that by grace we're saved through faith apart from works. 
that that's important. Lest anyone should boast. Go to that verse. Go to Romans eleven six. That if, if it's grace, it's not works. You can't mix them. Go to Galatians. Just read and study the book of Galatians. Talk about the gospel of grace and the glory and goodness there is in that. And you could also talk about the papacy, because the core of Catholicism um, of, of of having say all these extra doctrines that aren't from Scripture is trusting that the Pope is God's man. Now. This is why for some Roman Catholics, debating scripture is secondary because the whole time in the debate, they're thinking in the back of their head, but you're not the Pope. You can't interpret the Bible. You're not, you're not official. Like, who are you? You're some Protestant. You're, you're not even, you don't even have a legitimate church. Why should I listen to what you say about the Bible? So you might want to talk about the position of the papacy. And you say, I would say to a, a Roman Catholic, hey, show me the Pope just using the Bible. And I will submit because I would. I'm not, I'm not rebellious in, by nature, I don't think. You know, like I don't just want to rebel against authority. I'll submit if you could show me that in the Bible. And if you want to go into the historical stuff, you need to know the church fathers as well as they do because they'll be quoting all kinds of stuff out of context. So, um, yeah, I, my heart, I love, I love Catholics. I think that Catholicism is a wonder, wonderful truths about Christ, wonderful truths about Scripture with tons of human additions. It reminds me of the Pharisaism Jesus dealt with in his time where they had the true beliefs about God, the true beliefs about Moses and all this other stuff, but they added tons of human works and righteousness and an authority they never really had. Um, I think Pharisee, Pharisees and Roman Catholic leaders have a lot in common nowadays. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, for that thorough um, uh, explanation, guys. And, uh, uh, you know, once again, both of us have, have done some work on this issue of, um, you know, uh, Catholicism and, and whatnot. But a couple things also uh, that I would love to throw out and uh, Mike, feel free to for comment on this. But if you're going to have a conversation with um, someone of the Catholic belief, uh, Catholic faith, make sure you have an answer ready for this whole idea of sola scriptura. Right. Because a lot of Catholic, well, Catholics in general, they, they reject the idea of sola scriptura. Right. And by the way, sola scriptura is just basically means only scripture. Right. The Bible is the only authority. So as an evangelical Christian, we get our and this is where the divide happens. Right. We get what we believe is the truth from the Bible only sola only scriptura scripture. Right. Um, whereas a Catholic doesn't subscribe to that. Matter of fact, they will they will fight you on that. They will say, show me in the Bible where the Bible says it's the only authority. Show me where. Uh, any scripture, show me anywhere in the Bible where it says the only authority that we should listen to is the Bible. And that's one of their key main things that they will use to try to discredit the idea that the Bible is the only authority because they'll say the Bible never claims that is the only authority. And when, mm -hmm. if you can discredit that, if you can, if you can, um, if you can cut down uh, or reject the idea of sola scriptura, then you open yourself up to the the uh, the traditions, the church fathers, the the popes, and and putting what they say on the same level as what the Bible says, because sola scriptura is no, it's not a thing. It, we, we, you know what 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 our church leaders and church fathers have passed down to us are equivalent and on the same level as the Bible, because we don't believe the Bible teaches that it's the only. Uh, inspired inspired revelation. And then other thing I would say too is um, Mike mentioned several times about the Bible. Make sure you understand that the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible are not the same. There's some extra books in there called the Apocrypha 
And that is where they're getting a lot of their doctrine from. Because um, you may say, well, you know, man, where are they getting this stuff from? Like, I don't read it in my Bible, like praying to the saints, praying for the saints and uh, purgatory, like uh, giving alms to try to get somebody from purgatory to heaven. Where is this coming from? Well, it's because the, their Bible has seven extra books in it called the Apocrypha. And that's where they're getting a lot of their doctrine from. Mm hmm. That's awesome. I, I actually have a video on Sola Scriptura. I just got to plug it because you guys, I've made that video in mind with discussing this with Catholics in mind so that, you know, that would hopefully prepare you. There's specifically pa passages I go to and defining it and all that's very important. But uh, just, yeah, it's there if you guys want to look for it. Yeah.